Thanks so much for listening to Be Love Do Good podcast and being a part of this community. I wanted to just to give you a little update of some things that we have coming up. So there's a little bit of change that is going to be happening. And instead of having a podcast come out every week, we are going to change to once a month. And sometimes we'll do some bonus episodes bi-monthly. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to give you the best content. We want to make sure that it is something that serves you well. And truly, I want to get back to my roots of having people on that we tell stories of how to be love and do good and truly how to love our world well. So that's just a little bit of difference that you might see. Sometimes I think when podcasts have once a month or once every other week, it's easier to keep up. It's easier for me to keep up. And I want to make sure I give you the best possible episodes to help truly fuel and inspire you to love your communities well. Again, thank you. We are so grateful you've been on this journey with us for years. If you're new, welcome, and we will see you next week. Thank you for being love and doing good in your families and in your world. This is Be Love, Do Good Podcast, and I'm your host, Christy Hayes, mom at a two, founder of Be Strong Story, and author of the children's book, The Lunchbox Note, a true story of how a lunchbox note that said, Be Strong, Protect the Weak, Love Everyone, changed our life and created a mission for our family. Join us each week for conversations that inspire our families to live out true compassion, kindness, and what it looks like to be love and do good in our communities. It may take us out of our comfort zones, you guys, but I promise it will put us on a path to see others, love others, and quite possibly change the world. Hey everyone, welcome to Be Love Do Good Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Hayes. I'm so excited to have author Molly Stillman on today. She is a friend. She is such a joy. She wrote the book, um, If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry, which how many times have we said that and felt it? She talks about her book today. She talks about her story, and I know you are going to be in for a treat today. So please help me welcome Molly Stillman to the show. Hey, Molly, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited to interview you. You are such, you're going to be a fun guest. I can already tell it. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm so pumped, uh, Christy. I feel like you and I go way back. Uh, I mean, I had you on my show like years ago. I think for our children's ago. book that we wrote. Yeah, the lunchbox yes, notes. Yes. I mean, yeah. So it's just been um, just such a fun journey watching you. And so I just feel like I'm hanging out with an old friend. So I know. Same, same, same. So uh, listeners, you are going to love Molly. She is so fun and funny and it's just going to be such a great conversation today. So I'm going to like kick it off just right off. I like to just surprise my guests and I want you to give me and the listeners three things that we might not know about you or maybe that you think is interesting that people should know. Okay. Uh, this is no particular order. It's just, I'm spitballing first things that come to mind. Uh, number one is people don't know that I am actually an introvert. What? I seem like an extrovert. Um, and I would say, but although I will say like I test when you like test, I test as an introvert, Um, but I do have like extroverted tendencies, but I am much more like, I would rather just like 
Being so like your energy, <laughs> like when you're with a lot of people, like you're you're like, I need to go in the cave for a little bit and like re yes. yeah, okay, re-energize. Yep. Yeah. My husband's like that. Yeah. And I, now don't get me wrong, like I love being around sure. my people, but like especially if I'm around a lot of people I don't know, oh, I gotta like retreat and just be alone for just a while. A little bit. Um but it's, you know, it's a misconception because people feel like if you're like, if you have a big personality or if, you know, whatever, like they're like automatically assume that you're extroverted. So um, anyway, that is number one. Um, number two, uh, this is random. Um, I met the queen, uh, like Queen Elizabeth. What? Tell me about that. Yes. When I was a senior in college, I was the student body president at my university and the queen had come to, it was, and actually also fun fact, it was her last time to the United States. So it was her like first time to the United States in a while and her last time to the United States, like before she died. And, um, she came to, it was like to, to celebrate like the 450th, whatever, like anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown. And so where I went to college was like 10 minutes from William and Mary. Where'd you go to college? And, um, I went to Christopher Newport university and it's in Newport news, Virginia. And, um, it's like, you know, 15, 20 minutes from William and Mary, which, you know, Williamsburg and Jamestown, all that. And so the queen was coming. And so they wanted to have a delegation of students, like basically welcome the queen. I don't know why that this was like what they wanted, but they did. And so since I was student body president, I like represented my university. And so I went and um, I was like part of the welcoming committee for the queen and I got to speak to her. Wow. And I did you curtsy? And, like, did they, you, what's the show? I what's did. the show where they're, I can't even remember. I mean, it's probably like Downton Abbey or some, one of the shows where they forget to curtsy, you know, to, you didn't forget though, yeah. did you? No. I did not because they gave us like this whole briefing oh, on like okay. how you interact with her because you don't shake her hand like unless she puts her oh, hand out. Can- I mean, it was like a whole royal project. I was such a hugger. I would like engulf her in a hug and like <laughs> the bodyguards would be like tackling me. <laughs> Well, because she was like so cute and tiny and she's like, and uh, so I had, I don't know, like a 60 second conversation with her where she asked her what I was studying it, studying. And I told her I was studying English. And I remember she said, not the queen's English. And I was like, no, no. And then uh, she was like, well, what would you like to do with that? And I was like, I want to be a writer and I want to be a, co- a comedian. And she was like, a comedian. What is a comedian? <laughs> well, she's very like known to be very, very she's funny. Um, and so she kind of, yeah, she's very witty. Um, so anyway, so that was kind of like a cool, uh, like random. Yeah. And I, so I have a picture with That's her. That's amazing. That's a once in a lifetime. I know. I know. So and at the time I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then like looking back, wow. I'm like, wow, I got to yeah, meet the queen. That's amazing. Um, okay. And then uh, my third thing is that people might not know um, is I played golf competitively. Um, I did know the this. age of. Um, let's see. I started, I mean, I, my dad sawed off a set of clubs for me when I was oh, two. Oh, that's like Tiger Woods dad right there. But I played in my first like quote unquote tournament in first grade and then played competitively all through high school and then pretty much quit after high school. <laughs> but, but, now I just but, uh, but you can play for fun. My son is about to take up golf and he's really good. And it's actually, he's like a chill kid. So this is probably the best yeah. sport for him. He loves soccer the most, but I'm like, golf is something he can play forever and ever. And, yeah. you know, it's fun to like pull out as like a fun party yeah. trick 
when um I like there's def- definitely been times uh where I may or may not have like swindled some dudes for some cash. Yeah, you're like, oh, let's, Jesus. yeah, let's okay. let's let's do a little bit of golf. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll play. Oh, you guys want to bet oh, a couple holes? And then I like don't tell them that. <laughs> But I know how to play, and then I, I end up beating. I them. love it. <laughs> uh, Anyways, those are my three random that's facts. So good. Um, I love all those. So thank you so much for that. So we're talking today about your memoir, which, by the way, memoir is my favorite genre to read. Like I love. Oh, like, hey, <laughs> she got excited. Um, I love it. I love it because I don't. I don't know. I think. I don't know. Maybe why do you love memoir so much? Like it's my favorite because I get to learn about people. I feel like I'm in their headspace, you know, I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I love memoir. So what did, why do you love it so much? What is? Great question. I, yes, it is my favorite genre. I do. I do love like historical fiction and stuff like that too, but um, memoir is my favorite genre. And I think it's, um, you know, I, I love story. And so I love hearing people's stories. I think um, when you really get to know somebody and, um, you know why they tick, why they do things like their background, like you get a little bit more inside and insight into their humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that, like, it just helps us see each other differently. Yeah. Um, I love reading memoirs of different cultures and just live yeah. pe- lives of people that I've just never would even in a million years, like some memoirs that stand out, um, stand out in my head, like, um, it's actually a really like brutal title, but it's called First They Killed My mm. Father. <laughs> and it's about um actually I think the Netflix got made into a movie, but it's like about the genocide in Cambodia, which was like not a thing I really had like learned a yeah. lot about in school. So like a story like that, or Jeanette Wall's The Glass oh, Castle, which is just yeah. like, you know, yeah, just this i I mean, insane. So there's just so many different um you know, things that we can learn about each other through that. Um, and then I, I kind of joke, actually, I tell this in my book is like, uh, I love um, sometimes like I'll like love reading about somebody's like really terrible life. And then I close the book and I'm like, well, guess my life's not so bad. <laughs> right. Gives you a little perspective. Just a, and I'm also like a little nosy. Oh, right. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little, a little perspective. Um, I agree with you. I yeah. mean, I think some of my best teachers and perspective have been through memoirs who've been people who have been through, you know, horrible things or who have come out on the other side or yeah, I, I love it too. So your memoir, memoir, if I don't laugh, I'll cry is actually one of my favorite phrases. We say it quite a bit at work. Um, we work in a very crisis filled, um, space. We are in the anti-trafficking space and it's so heavy sometimes and mm-hmm. things happen all the time. And it's, or if something happens that, you know, you didn't plan for or, you know, whatever, it's like you got to laugh or you're going to cry because things just oh, happen. Yeah. So tell me um, a little bit about that title. And then one of the things that I want you to talk about is that I, that I really love that you said is that you were worried um, that you were too much for people. And I think I worry about that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our listeners too. So talk to me about that as well. Uh, yeah. So the title, um, this was not the original title for the book. Um, I am really, I overanalyze titles. I really like struggled with, I wrote an entire book, like I, a whole manuscript and I still was like, I don't like the title like that I had. Um, my initial title was actually for laughing out loud. Um, and it was like, you know, it was supposed to be kind of a play on the phrase for crying out loud. And, 
I was like, it's fine, but I just didn't love it. And, but I turned my manuscript in with that title. And I just, the whole time through the first phase of editing the book, I just was like, I don't, I don't love it. Like it's not, it's not it. And one night I really, I, I went to bed and I just laid in bed and I was like, God, I really need the title for this book. It's not what it is. And I don't, I don't have it. I need you to give it to me. And I went to sleep and I kid you not, Christy, I woke up at 3 a.m. wide awake and I sat up in bed and I was like, the title needs to be if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Like I just knew it. And I, I, I don't know where it came from. It's not like I, it's a phrase yeah. I've said before, but it just had never come, you know. Um, and so I emailed my editor and I was like at 3 a.m. And I was like, well, I just woke up and I have this idea for a title. Is this it? And she was like, yes, 100%. And that it's been so fun because people have said how much they oh, yeah. love the title. And I'm like, yes. Um, so that was what it was supposed to be. Um, and, you know, and part of it is because it is like, it's the phrase that so many of us know of just like the, if you don't laugh, right, you'll cry. Right. Like my friend was texting me the other day. She was on a 17 hour car oh. ride um, coming back from New York, uh, picking up their stepdaughter. They were in the car. It was her and her husband and their three children, a six week old newborn, a two year old toddler and a 10 year old daughter and their hundred pound golden doodle. And I know driving through a snowstorm. And she was like, she texted me. She was like, they were at five hours into the drive and the two year old threw up everywhere. Of course course they did. And so she was like, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. And it's like this, it's this common human experience that we all know. And, um, and so there's that it's like the, the common human experience of we all get the, if we don't laugh, we'll cry. Um, and then there's also the, the, that is my story. That is my whole life of like, of the 10 living life in the tension of joy and Mm. grief. And that's what this book is. And so the title just like perfectly encapsulated that. So that's where the, the title came from. Um, and then as far as like your question about um, feeling like I was too much. Um, yes, a hundred percent. Uh, I, you know, for most of my life, I've been a pretty boisterous person. Like I said, that's why it surprises people and they find out that I'm an extrovert or I'm an introvert is, um, I just have always had a big personality. Um, I come from a line of Irish Catholics who, and my parents were recovering alcoholics and both of my parents were one of five. Um, and so like genetically, like I am genetically predisposed to have a very loud laugh. Like, let's just say family reunions in the Buckley family, like we're not quiet. Okay. Like my, I have uh, one of my, my aunts, my aunt Peggy, like she has a call sign for her children, like for, and her grandkids, like when, when she can't find one, she just will stand in the middle of a store and be like, <laughs> like, and they know they're coming. And they know, and you're like, it's just, that is the essence of my family. It's just, we're loud and we, we're, we laugh and, um, you know, some of them drink, some of them are sober, Mm -hmm, you know, it's just, it's a loud environment. And so I was genetically predisposed to this and, um, you know, and I just always liked to make people laugh and I always liked to, to be creative and silly and, um, you know, and so, you know, all throughout elementary school, like the, I never got in trouble, but you know what I did get in trouble for? Talking, talking in class, like laughing too loudly. Like that's what or I got in trouble for. Or making someone laugh, I was never, probably. 
or making mm-hmm. somebody else laugh. Yeah. Like, so, and it wasn't like I was in there like trying to, you know, be a distraction in my class. It just was just kind of who was who I was. <laughs> and so I had so many teachers over the years, like say something to me about being quieter, being mm-hmm. smaller, but, you know, just, I was just, you know, I get it. I get it. And I like, I understand, like I've toned it down some over the years. Um, but then of course that translated into high school and into college. And then in my first job right out of college, I was working in a pretty like serious environment. Um, I was working in politics actually. And, uh, I had a boss that like, I pulled me into his office to tell me what a great job I was doing, how I was like, just, you know, excelling, producing quality work, like doing great, but that I was too loud, that like my laugh was too loud and was disturbing people. (laughs) Like didn't affect my work, didn't affect anybody else. Like it didn't, it didn't affect anything, but just he didn't like that. My laugh was a little too loud. Um, and so it just was like this message that had been sent to me over and over and over again, that like, you're a little Mm -hmm. bit too much for people. Um, And so I got really self-conscious about that. And so um, it really wasn't until later in life when I realized like, no, God created me with a, with a joy and to bring joy to other people. And like, I can't control how I laugh. (laughs) Like, I don't know what you want me to do about it. You know, little things like that. And it sounds, it sounds silly, but um, it's a message that almost always is sent Mm -hmm. to women. I don't think I've ever heard a man say Oh yeah, I got in trouble. It's, people told me I was a little too, too much. When it, never, 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 never. Um, and guys, boys, especially in class, would do the exact same thing, and it would be a boys will be right. boys. And so it was like this this message that was constantly getting um, relayed uh, to us and um, and to me. And so, man, I yeah, I have a lot that I could say about that, but that's that's the gist of it. I think a lot of us, we just talked about this in our staff meeting the other day. We were talking about imposter syndrome. And one of the things that someone said is like, it's so hard sometimes when you've been told you're too much or um, just in your situation, for instance, that you want to like shrink down or you think you can't be authentically you. And there's, I go into law enforcement spaces a lot. And that is a place that I'm like, I've probably shouldn't be here. I mean, I'm, I'm here because I need right. to be, but they're very serious and they're very like get things done. And I am bubbly and I am a different, you know, a different person. So sometimes I think I have to like temper it down. And I have this friend who um, is our chief of police here in Waco. And she is the first black woman who's been our chief of police. And she is the most incredible voice, like fun and boisterous and bubbly. And I always tell her, I'm like, thank you for helping me be my authentic self because I see you in those spaces being your joyful, bubbly, not trying to, you know, temper down because you're in a serious room or because you're more powerful than other people. You don't do that. You just act yourself. So I think it's so important. When did you figure out like, it's okay for me to be authentically me and what helped you get there? Um. So it was probably about uh, 12 years ago. Um, so I got saved in the fall of 2010. And, how old were you? Am um, I allowed to ask that? Does that tell you how I was old you are? 25. So yeah, it was, it was the fall of 2010. Um, I was 25. And I I spent, you know, I mean, that that initial process, like after you get saved, you know, it's not like a, uh, sometimes I, I feel like it's marketed as this like, 
uh, you know, everything changes immediately. <laughs> it's just like not, not true. Uh, it's, you know, sanctification is a slow and painful process. Um, but I, I would say like it took through that time. I, I mean, I was in a relationship. I was, um, I got engaged and my husband and I got married in February of 2012. And, um, we, we had been, uh, you know, really, um, you know, I, he had just, my husband had really like walked with me through those first, that first year and a half or so of walking with God. And, um, and all the while, like, I also was like, I was working a day job, but then I was also like doing creative stuff on the side. And, um, I remember a conversation. So I had, I was still doing comedy. So I did, you know, sketch and improv comedy for a really long time. And I did it primarily before I knew Jesus. And I, that's not to say that you can't do comedy and know <laughs> Jesus. I just was in a dark place when I was doing comedy. And so when I got saved, I eventually phased out of doing comedy. Um, and it was partly because like I was, just my life was changing. I was getting married. Like I didn't want to be at the theater like five nights a week. You know, I wanted to be home with my husband and um, I didn't want to do like the hustle of the comedy life anymore. Um, but then there was part of me too that like felt like I couldn't, I like I needed to remove myself from that place because that place had been an unhealthy place for me. Um, and I, somebody had made a comment to me that had known me pre Jesus. Um, and this was like shortly after my husband and I got married where somebody had made a comment to me, like you're different now. <laughs> and it said it in a derogatory way, not in a, like you're different now. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like there's a, the, the, tone, tone. the tone, the tone was mm -hmm. telling, um, of like, you're different. And I said, yeah, I am like, I am like, I, Jesus changed me a hundred percent. And he's going to continue to change me. However, like I'm still Molly, like I'm still me. I'm still, my personality hasn't really changed. Like, um, you know, the, the source and where I find my identity and, and my assuredness and, and all of that, like that's changed. Mm -hmm. My inner being has changed, but like, the person that God hardwired me to be hasn't. Um, and so that was like the whole origin of my blogs when I rebranded my blog and when I changed my Instagram name, like now it's still being Molly. Like that was mm. the whole thing is like, I've, yeah, I, I am different, but I'm also like, I'm still me. Like I, you know, like not that much. And so, um, I hope that, I mean, I think that answers your yeah, question yeah. as far as. I think, well, I think yeah. you're, you probably found your identity in Christ versus identity in worldly yeah. success. And you kind of talk about that right. a little bit about um, trying to find your success in worldly things. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I grew up, um, you know, in a home where, I mean, I had incredible parents, love you know, amazing, loving, hilarious, fun parents. Um, but you know, they also were not perfect human beings. Um, you know, and so I didn't grow up in a home where I knew Jesus. I knew love, but I didn't know God's love and I didn't know the gospel. Um, and so I, you know, 
when my mom got sick, my mom, my mom got sick when I was in fourth grade. And if you've ever, if anyone has ever dealt with like a chronically ill parent or, um, child or spouse or whatever, like chronic illness just takes everything from you. Um, and, uh, you know, so throughout that time, like I'm going through these formative years of my life, you know, my young tween years and into my teenage years and and high school and all of that, like seeking identity and seeking purpose and fulfillment and success. And, and then, and trying to like, in the things that like could give me that fleeting moment of pleasure and satisfaction. And, um, it was like this idea of, oh, well, if the world approves of what I'm doing or if, you know, because I'd been told I was too much or whatever, like if somebody on the outside says, you're, you know, you're cool or you're popular, you're successful or what, whatever, like you're pretty. Um, I was like trying to counteract the negative messages I'd been receiving and was fighting against and all these things. Um, while also dealing with, you know, a mother who was dying. Um, it just, I was just striving constantly. I was constantly trying to seek approval of the world, of man, of of men, of friends or whatever. Um, it was just all this outside influence. Um, and so it it eventually becomes exhausting. Um, and then, you know, I lose my mother and then uh, I uh, came into a lot of money when I was um, a senior in college. And so then all of a sudden it was like this possession of, um, I had all these, these financial resources at my disposal. And so what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to do the thing that feels good. And so I'm going to buy the thing that makes me feel good. I'm going to go on the trip and fly first class. And I'm going to just like heedlessly spend money because it makes me feel good for a moment. And it was, again, it was that constant seeking of worldly pleasure. Um, when all it did was like just lead to disappointment. It just led to heartbreak because worldly idols, when we find, when we look for our identity, when we look for approval in worldly things, when we try to find, you know, purpose and meaning and comfort in fame or fortune or marriage or parenting or whatever it is, like whatever this outside thing is, if we, if we find our identity and success in that, like, we are going to be mm-hmm. disappointed. Like if you, tr- if you see yourself as like, I can be nothing other than like the most perfect mother. Like if you, if you strive to be a perfect mother and find your identity in being the best mother, you will 100% of the time fail. Like you will never be that. You will never find identity and purpose and meaning and success in that because it is a it's a fleeting worldly thing and you will screw it up and so then when it does when it does happen and when it does fail you like then all of a sudden everything else comes into question and you're like what you know and and you you start to question everything but when you let all that go and you don't find your identity and your purpose and your meaning in the things of this world and instead you find it in Jesus and Jesus alone He's never going to disappoint you. He is never going to let you down. Like 100% of the time, he is going to be who he yeah. says he is. And um, and so that is so powerful 
but it's a really, really difficult lesson to learn. And so that's a lesson that I had to just unfortunately learn the hard yeah. way yeah. and, and do, do in a really roundabout way. Do you way. remember kind of your breaking point of like, oh, hey, this isn't actually working. <laughs> like this isn't going to fulfill me. Well, really, it was when I the day that I asked um, my now husband, but we were, you know, just seeing each other at the time, if I could go to church with him. And was he a believer um, you know, at the time? That, okay. He was. Yeah, he's been. Yeah, he's been raised in the church his whole life and, um, you know, has been walking with God his whole life. And um, so in, in 2010, really that spring uh, and into summer was by far like my mental, emotional, spiritual rock bottom. And it's because like I got to this point where I'd been because, um, you know, eventually like uh, I had gotten into significant amounts of financial debt. Um, I was isolating myself from people. I was um, I found myself in a pretty, you know, in a really unhealthy, toxic relationship. And, um, you know, I had kind of made my way into uh, this you know, I've been working to get out of debt because I'd gotten in myself into some pretty significant financial debt. And um, I was kind of two years into that debt journey where I was trying to get out of debt. And I was living in North Carolina and the guy that I had moved to North Carolina for broke up with me. Um, and so I lived alone. I'm working four jobs trying to get out of debt. I um, you know, I'm now single. Uh, I didn't really know anybody. And I just like, at that point, I had no hope. Like I had no light at the end of the tunnel. Like I just didn't see a way out. Mm -hmm. And the only way out I saw was I felt suicidal. And I just, um, I had, uh, many, many, many nights where I got to a very, very, very dark place. Um, and when you get to that very dark place, um, there, there is only two options at that point. Um, one mm. of them is the destructive option, um, that I had seriously considered ending my life. Um, but then the other option is attempting, uh, finding some way to get help. And so I, uh, you know, but I kind of fast forward a couple of months and I had started just hanging out with, you know, we weren't boyfriend, girlfriend. It was just hanging out with this guy that I worked with and I didn't want a boyfriend. I didn't want anything like that. Um, but, uh, we were hanging out and there was just something different about him. Um, and I, you know, at the time it made no logical sense in hindsight. It really was clearly the Holy spirit, um, where, I'd had a pretty uh, dark night and um, the next day I asked John if I could go to church with him. And I think at that point it was a, it was a conversation that now, like I said, I know in hindsight was, was really the Holy spirit. Mm, working yeah. Yeah. Um, and just saying like, give, give me a try. <laughs> and, um, and so I did. Mm. And um and so I walked into the doors of a church for the first time and I heard mm. the gospel for the first time. And yeah, I left that day with a glimmer of hope and hope is powerful when you don't have hope. Hope is powerful. And, um, and so that began the process to answer your question really like 
that began the process of, mm. of, uh, finding my identity in Christ and not in the things of this world. And it was, um, it was not like a rapid thing, but I would say like almost immediately I began to mm. counteract those messages that I had been, um, like God's word had been counteracting, um, those messages, um, that the world had been telling me, um, for such a long time. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, that's definitely like, I can look back and see that that was the turning point. For That's me. awesome. Um, you're a mother now. How many kids do you have? I have two um, here. Yeah, two here on earth. And then I have uh, two baby boys in heaven. Um, talk to me a little about the impact that your mom had on you. I know she died at, you were 17, is that right? 17 years yeah, old. 17. Tell me a little about um, the impact she had on your life and what that was like. So... Um, everything, um, you know, she was, uh, so she was a nurse in the Vietnam war. Um, and, uh, I kind of, I, I talk about this uh, in the book about how, like, knowing my mom served in Vietnam was not something that was like ever a sit down conversation that we would have. It's just always like, it was just sheer osmosis into mm -hmm. her life. And, um, because she was an advocate for women veterans. Um, you know, she had written a memoir called Home Before Morning, which was the first nonfiction account of the Vietnam War from the perspective mm. of a woman. And, um, you know, her book at the time was really groundbreaking and it was really divisive. And, um, you know, so I grew up uh, and I, I had just, I, I, you know, again, by sheer osmosis, like seeing um, the impact that she was having on people and, and on the veterans community and, and fighting for the, the rights of women veterans and, um, and so much. And, um, and so, you know, then when she got sick, uh, you know, it just, it sucked mm. everything yeah. from us. And, um, and then with her dying, um, you know, fall of my senior year of high school, um, you know, just from, from the time she got sick in the fall of when I was in fourth grade to when she died, um, the fall of my senior year of high school, you know, it's just like a really formative yeah. time of life. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it had, it had an impact on literally yeah. everything in my life, um, both good and bad in that, you know, I mean, uh, I would not have been, I would not have written this mm -hmm. book <laughs> had that mm -hmm. not happened. Um, cause that was, you know, the catalyst and, and the, um, you know, that, that began the chain of events that led me eventually to rock mm. bottom. Um, you know, had that not happened, I mean, I'm sure maybe I would have hit rock bottom another way, but certainly not the way that I did. Um, but then also just who she was as a person, you know, impacted me and everything. She was an incredible mother. She didn't let her illness, um, you know, our, her illness took so much from us, but she never let it like, uh, uh she never let it change the way that she parented mm. me in that, like, um, you know, she just was always just tried to be as present mm. as she could. And, um, she just wanted to be in my life and see me do things and see me grow up. And, um, you know, I didn't learn actually until I was writing this book that, uh, her initial diagnosis, the doctors gave her about a two year, um, life sentence. They basically said, you've got, you know, about two years. She got eight. Wow. Um, but my parents never told mm. me that. So she was literally mothering and my dad was fathering 
with like every single day was a mm. gift because they, in their mind, they're like, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Sure. And they lived like that for eight years. And so in some ways, like that has greatly impacted me in how I parent mm-hmm. and thinking about the fact that, you know, no, I don't, you know, heaven, thank heavens, like I don't currently have uh, a chronic illness. <laughs> um, but, you know, I could get, you know, uh, a swift kick to the head by one of my goats <laughs> tomorrow and and keel over and die. Like, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, tomorrow yeah. is not guaranteed. And so um, it does give you like this perspective on the fleetingness mm-hmm. of life and um, and just the way that my mom saw joy. She was she lived that phrase of if I don't mm-hmm. laugh, I'll cry. <laughs> like just she she had this gift of seeing humor and even the bleakest of situations. And and um, and so, yeah, it was, it, you know. Yeah, she, I mean, she impacted everything about my life for sure. I read a quote, um, I think by Kate Bowler. I love her uh, this week just about Lent. And it was just like, like basically there's nothing in your control. <laughs> like everything is out yeah. of your control. You don't know if you're going to, you know, everything is a gift. And I was reminded of that. I was um, doing kind of a Lent thing of like 40 things to kind of like needs to die in me so there can be regrowth. Yeah. and. One of those is just the expectations, um, to have like no expectations that every day is a gift. And then every extra thing is just icing on the cake. Like it's just the extra. And I think probably you going through something like that, the perspective to be present in the moment and to be here and all there, uh, or all here, um, is really important to you. So, yeah. Well, I'm so excited for, I could talk to you forever, but I know we need to go and I can't wait for people to get your book. If I don't laugh, I'll cry. Is there anything else that you would love readers to just, after they read your book, you're like, man, I hope that they get this out of it. Man. um, Yes. There's a couple of different answers to that, but I think for your audience in particular, um, my hope and my prayer for this um, is that, you know, kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning, like with how we love memoir. Um, yeah, like while, yes, this is my story. Um, it is, this book is also all of our collective Mm -hmm. stories in that, um, you know, if we all live long enough, like we are all going to experience heartbreak and suffering and joy and pain and grief and loss and celebration. And we're going to make stupid choices and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to, fumble along and we're going to, you know, find identity in the wrong things. Like we're all going to do these. Like this is the common human experience. Like I said, like that, that if I don't laugh, I'll cry. It is the common human experience. And so while I, you know, I tell this story through my lens because it's my lived experience, my hope and my prayer is that others would see their story in this as well. Um, and really, uh, my, (laughs) spoiler, my favorite chapter that I, I mean, I love, I loved writing this book. Um, but the, the chapter that is the most near and dear to my heart and is the, it's the chapter I really pray every single person reads is the very last chapter and it's, uh, titled it is finished. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really like, it is the thesis. It is the heart of the book. It is my heart and soul for, for you, the, the reader. Um, 
like summed up in one chapter. And so um, that's really what my my prayer is, is that people take that away um, and that they they read that that chapter and they close the book and they know that they're not alone um, and that there's nothing in their life that can't be redeemed, that they are never too broken for God, that they are never too far from God, um, that he is right there and he has been waiting um, wherever you are in your journey. Um, that is just my prayer um, and that it's okay to like, laugh in the midst of just deep grief and, um, and all of that. So yeah, that's, that's my, uh, that's my hope and prayer for it. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Molly. Um, we're so excited to get it, to read it. And thanks for being on today. Thanks so much for having me, Christy. I just adore you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I adore her, and I know you will adore her writing. So I encourage you to get her new book, If I Don't Laugh, I Will Cry. And I just think you're going to love it. You are going to love her story and the way that she just intersperses grief and pain and joy and disappointment. And I think we will find a little bit of our own story in hers. Thanks so much for being with us. I love how each and every one of you are being loved and doing good in your family in your community, in your world. We're so happy to do it with you. Have a great day and we'll see you next week.